There's lots of things we could uh, talk about. Now, I'll probably disappoint you again because I'm not going to address the male-female thing on many levels. Obviously, I'll talk about it because it's an important part of the passage. But this morning, I once again want to go into uh, more of what I believe the context within the time that it was written uh, to help us understand what's actually happening uh, in this passage. So let me pray and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll have a closer look at Genesis 2. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that uh, you have given us the privilege of an insight in how you have formed humanity, how you have created us, and for what purpose you've created us, Lord, and, and the fact that we've been created in your image. Father God, as we open this word now, we trust that your Holy Spirit will convict us. Father God, if things are said which are not correct, I pray that the Holy Spirit will make that known clearly. And if they are correct, Lord, that we'll be convicted to be moved uh, to be able to worship you on a deeper level. Father God, help us now. Be with us as we faithfully enter this text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've mentioned before, I've trekked through Nepal uh, a couple of times in my life. Uh, the last was in 2013 with Ellie. Uh, now, I love Nepal. I think there are some real striking aspects of it. Uh, one of them is the Himalayas, and you only get a little glimpse of it there, but uh, they are spectacular. The Himalayas, as you're trekking through Nepal, is something to behold. You cannot uh, describe it. You cannot even show a picture of it. You've got to be there to understand how uh, vast. They are breathtaking, but they are also torturous. Um, I've almost died as we were heading across uh, the uh, Thurung La Pass, which is that photo uh, with myself, Ellie, and our guide and porter. Uh, that's, uh, that was the day I almost died. Uh, isn't that wonderful to put that up on the screen? That's one for Facebook, the day I almost died. Uh, but it's a beautiful country. The other breathtaking things or the really impacting things were the people. Very generous, very welcoming uh, one of the things, uh, I don't know what I've mentioned to you, but I, I had my 40th birthday during that trip. Yep, that means I'm 47. So I had my 40th birthday before you start calculating in your heads. Um, I had my 40th birthday and the actual day was high up on, uh, on, on the walk uh, where it was all very barren. There was you know, no vegetation, nothing in sight. And what we would do is... Uh, I didn't plan on telling you this, but I love this story. So, uh, so we, we, we've turned up and here we are. And we, you go to a tea house and the porter and the guide, they look after you and they take orders for food and all that kind of thing. But this day, they just disappeared for about three or four hours. It was really strange. We had no idea where they'd gone and we got a bit worried. Anyway, so we're asking around. There was going, oh, I don't know. Anyway, so it gets to about, well, it was certainly dinner time. And in they come with a birthday cake, with a candle on it, and start singing happy birthday or whatever they could, uh, whatever they knew. They had spent three or four hours trying to track down an egg, uh, trying to track down all these ingredients and then having it cooked over a campfire uh, so that I could have a birthday cake on this particular day. I haven't put the picture up there, but uh, you know that's the kind of people that they are. They are generous, they are welcoming, and they are very hardworking. You're, very, you're struck by how, uh, I don't like the word primitive, but non-industrial their farming techniques are. 
Uh, it's, it's just remarkable. And then you're also impacted by their religion. See, Nepal is Buddhist primarily. And you can see there on the left, uh, there's, a, uh, there's, there's a temple. And you would have temples high up on the mountain or shrines. Uh, you can see prayer flags uh, that, are, uh, that are in uh, on the top of Thurungla Pass there. Uh, there's, a, there's a real Buddhist, uh, a Buddha, a Buddhist uh, religion that's happening there. And what they would have is these shrines and these temples. Uh, and then they would form statues in the form of Buddha in order to be worshipped. They would have rituals, incantations, prayer walks, chiming on bells, chants, uh, all to these statues as part of their religious makeup. So these statues have been made in the image of their gods in order to be worshipped. In the ancient Near East, during the time of Moses, when he wrote Genesis, which would have been after the Exodus and uh, before, uh, before his death, they, it was common to make statues in the image of the deities in which the ancient Near Eastern peoples worshipped. In their culture, the king was seen as the divine image of the gods who guaranteed natural and social cosmic order on the earth. The king had both a representation of the god on the earth and also to rule on behalf of the gods on the earth. So therefore, kings were worshipped as gods. So images were then created and statues made and put around all the land and given uh, the status to be worshipped as a reminder that the king and the gods were present in, that, in every area of the kingdom. In Daniel chapter 3, we saw this play out in the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, put up a statue to be worshipped and made a decree as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, uh, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The, this is how it functioned, to, in order to, for the people to worship the king. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were subsequently thrown into the fire for not doing it. And in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, this is how it functioned. The gods were put into the image in the king and the rest of humanity were effectively no better than slaves to the gods. So as we consider the creation of humanity in Genesis, but in Genesis 2, but also we're going to spend time in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, we're going to see how this passage redefines the status and understanding of humanity in contrast to the prevailing view of that time. See, in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, it says this. So God, created, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, humanity has been made in the image and likeness of God. And in the historical and cultural context in which I've just explained, 
this was a real moment of impact for Israel. As they have been brought into the promised land, they're being prepared to live with the God, the true God, creator of all humanity, creator of the heavens and earth, to be live in the promised land with him as his people, they are being told that you have been made in his image. See, they've just been living in a culture that worshipped Pharaoh as God. They were under the slavery to Pharaoh. He was the one who represented their gods over all the earth. He was the image of God. And any statues that he chose to erect were to be worshipped. See, as Moses is given the account of creation by Yahweh, and you'll notice that it actually uses the word Lord later on in chapter 2, which is the word Yahweh, the name that was given to Moses to tell the Israelites who they are. This personal God is telling them that I'm the one who formed you. And the significance is highlighted in chapter 2, verse 7, where we have the word Lord, Yahweh. It says, I think I've got it up there for you. It says, then Yahweh formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. It's in the ancient Near East when an image had been formed to be worshipped, it was consecrated by a ceremony called mouthwashing. The reason was to transform the statue, which was simply material taken from the earth, and transform it into the image of the God. Not into the God as such, but in some sense into a God. The statue was then said to be born of the gods as if it was a child of God and become the living presence of the deity on the earth. See, the distinction was that it wasn't considered merely a symbolic reminder nor did it become the actual literal God. And here we've got this picture of Yahweh, the personal God who has revealed himself, set a people apart for himself, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has taken Moses to lead his people out of slavery to the false image of God into a land. And here we're given this account that all of humanity had been created in the image of God that the breath of God, the ruach, the, the spirit of God, is the one that goes into the nostrils or the mouth, you could, you could connect, in order to give humanity something more than just being creatures, but not being gods themselves. They are distinct they are made in his image. It distinguishes humanity from everything else. And it's not just that we've been made as a symbolic reminder of God. 
nor did we become God, but we were made in his image. And this is why when uh, Moses is then given the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the very beginning in verses 3 to 5 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Because there's one God and the image of God, which is humanity, to be his representation isn't to be worshipped in contrast. And what did the Israelites do while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments? They take the gold, gold and they form it into a calf to be worshipped. And if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 10, Notice it says, uh, it, it's talking about the headwaters and the, the Pishon and it winds through the entire, where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. See, notice the gold isn't the thing that's the problem here. The materials of the earth are good, but we form them to be worshipped. And today we love to worship ourselves and we love to worship humanity. We have a celebrity cult status. You go to Instagram, you go on the internet anywhere and it's all about worshipping bodies and ideas and, and ideals. We are so good at worshipping anything but God. But notice also here, that there's no king. That is because God has always been the king. See, there's no need for a king on the earth to be in the image of God because all of humanity is created in the image of God. And you don't worship a king, you worship the true God because he's a relational God. And this is why when we go to 1 Samuel 8, 6-7, Samuel is grieved because the Israelites are asking for a king like all the other nations. And we're told, but they, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And Yahweh told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Can you see how this is functioning to overturn what humanity is, is moved towards worshipping. False gods, humanity, a human king. And what's also so striking here is that there is an image of God at all. Exodus told us you're not to make anything in the form or image of God. And here we're told we are the image of God. Male and female. Humanity. Not to be worshipped. It should strike us as how important this is to understand that we are to worship God alone and we are to reflect him. But being made in God's image is not just to remind the earth that there's a creator. It comes with great purpose. Now, if you take a coin of the Commonwealth of Australia, you will see 
these images on it. This is the image of the queen. Yes, we have a queen and she has some form of authority and I'm sure we're all excited to know that one day we'll be carrying around in a pocket the head of Prince Charles. Imagine that in the not-too-distant future. See, the picture on the coin is an image of the queen. It looks like her, but apart from reminding us that we have a queen... It has no real purpose, no real function, and it doesn't do anything. We certainly don't worship it. Here we're told God creates a garden teeming with life for humanity to work in and take care of. He gives us great purpose. See, the work of nurturing and caring for the earth, it has great meaning. Why? Because we should be doing that as a representation of how God cares and nurtures and loves his creation. Now, regardless of your politics, I'm not telling you how to vote here because there are many other reasons not to vote for certain parties or any party. I once worked with a Christian who refused to recycle anything. Now, his logic was this. The sooner we destroy the earth, the sooner Jesus comes and gives us a new one. Now, logically, if you skip a bit of theology, that makes some sense. But see how dangerous that is? Because as the image of God to represent him on the earth, who claims to have been restored in relationship with him through Christ, this man is saying, I don't care about his creation. So therefore, God doesn't care about this world. Well, that's, that's not the case here. We destroy trees that literally make the air we breathe. We mine all the resources of the earth without considering the long-term impact. 77% of rivers longer than 1,000 kilometres no longer flow freely from their source to the sea. Coral reefs are being destroyed. There is a 1.6 million square metre area of rubbish in the Pacific Ocean. Over 1 million species of plants and animals are currently near extinction. We have been given a great mandate to care for the earth. And whether you like it or not, that's what's going on here. Because it reflects God's love for his creation. But see, being in the image of God has even greater purpose than this. There is a greater reason why it has such impact. And that is relationship. The huge impact of this passage is the relational component between the creator God and his image. There is true relationship here that is not seen in any mythology, is not seen in any worldview. Man cannot even dream of this. We wouldn't even dream of the gods being coming down onto our level and and relating to us imagine that we can't even we don't even have room for that kind of god 
But here, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the personal God with a personal name, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, has a relationship and closeness and involvement with the creation that is intimate and full of love because he is love. It's a partnership that has been created. And it's got a bigger purpose than Genesis. It looks beyond the fall. And it is a partnership that goes into a covenant to Abraham, Isaac. It is, an, it is a covenant of restoration and relationship and faithfulness and commitment. A commitment that will never let go of his creatures who have been made in his image. He is so intimately involved in them that we couldn't even dream of this. It's a partnership that's been created for the kingdom of God and ultimately for his greatest glory, which will see him die on the cross to express that great commitment and love to us. What kind of God is this? Well, it's certainly not one we would make up because we would subjugate, we would, we would certainly uh, play down any of that idea. We don't want a God who loves us. We want a God who we're afraid of. Chapter 3, verse 8 shows the everyday intimacy between God and humanity before the fall. And, 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 and Keith will come next week and talk about the fall. But I think the great impact and contrast going on. Have a look at chapter 3, uh, verse 8 here. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So what do they do? Well, they hide because they've already disobeyed him. But right now I want to focus on how intimate that is. He is living amongst them. He is walking with them. There is a relationship that not even any mythology can create. He has created them in his image, given them the garden, given them purpose, loved them, and hopefully we'll see next week, even after their fall, his gracious love towards them, closed them, and continues to commit to them despite their full rejection of him. So in the expression of all this is emphasised in the closeness of him giving male and female in his creation. See, God doesn't need us to be in relationship to him. He is in perfect relationship with him himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has extended that to us. But notice he makes us male and female because he recognises it's not good to be alone. Because while he is one God, he is three persons in perfect relationship and he wants that. He wants that for the man. Let me read to you verses uh, 20 to 24. Sorry, that's small. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And as we go, man, as it says later in the Bible, comes from woman, just as woman has come from man, this image of this closeness and intimacy. And throughout this passage, the language is of partnership. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See, the word for helper is found in the prophets later on in military exercises. As someone goes to face war, they need someone to come alongside them and join forces to be stronger. So we see in Ecclesiastes, it's stronger for two A cord of three strands will never be broken. That was my wedding text. I should have remembered it. See, there is God, and there is man, and there is woman intertwined. That is the strength. This is the image that's happening here. It's of partnership. And this word for helper, don't get confused, that's used of God later on as well. God is my helper. God is the one who helps me. This is a a complementarian idea. It is a completion of creation. It is man and woman coming together in oneness in order to be the fullness of the image as they express themselves in the love that God has for them. Now remember, this is before the fall. We're talking about a perfect reality here so the creation of woman as a partner is far more than procreation it's companionship it's a strength it's relationship and it's to reflect that relationship god has within himself and with his people the text then moves to a crescendo it's a high point Humanity is created, and look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame. What does sin do? Brings shame. It brings guilt. It brings shame. We don't have a shame culture here. But in many cultures, and some of you are from those cultures, shame is at the centre of culture. You do everything not to be shamed, not to be, bring shame to your family, not to bring shame to yourself. And here, there is no shame. There is complete freedom, oneness, male, female, united, set in the garden of perfection, walking with God in the cool of the day. 
It is a beautiful picture. It is the pinnacle of the expression of God's goodness. And next week we're going to see all that be broken, completely destroyed, as the fruit is taken. But I just want to finish by bringing it back to that understanding of kingship, how awful it was for Israel to ask for a king, for Samuel to be distressed. You don't need a king. God is your king. You put king, a king on the earth and you're going to worship him like the others as an image of God, as something that isn't right. You're going to create him as an idol. You're going to create him as someone to be worshipped. It's the great problem of sin. It's the ordering of creation that's been destroyed. We worship the creature instead of the creator. When we say Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, one of the great, great truths of the gospel and even though we're looking at the fall next week, is the restoration of God as king. See, one of the great things about Jesus, when we hear the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, as he tabernacled, he tented amongst us, as God, God took on the form, in the Greek, the morphe, the, the form of humanity, humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, I guess, humbled himself, took on the form. Think about this, God taking on the form of humanity. In contrast to us being made in the image and likeness of God, he takes on the form of humanity. Not as someone who is just in the image of God, but is God. God the Son in the flesh. And as he goes through his life in perfection, as he goes into the wilderness to be tempted, as he proves that he is the one who does not bow to temptation, as he proves the one, he's the one who is the promised saviour of the world, as he does not fall, and as he demonstrates the great love as we saw before Easter, as he suffers in Gethsemane, as he goes on the path, and as he rides on a donkey, and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. And as Pilate mistakenly writes, king of the Jews, instead of this man claims to be the king of the Jews. In God's providence, he is making a statement that yes, this is the only true king that can ever, form, uh, can ever be uh, worthy of my people. Why? Because it is my son. Because it is God himself. And so he is worthy to be worshipped. There is one who is worthy. And so Thomas touches his hands and his feet and he falls to the ground, my Lord and my God. That's the great news, the good news. 
that even though we have destroyed this and our intention of our hearts, our, our movement of heart because of the fall is to worship the creature. We see it all around us. God, in his great love for us, has reversed all of that because the true king, who was always the true king, has taken on the form of man in order to bring the greatest glory for himself. And so when on that final day that all gather around that throne, ten thousands upon ten thousands, and we declare, worthy is the Lamb, praise and honour and glory to him. So worship your king. You are now able to worship your king. Just make sure it's not King Charles. King Jesus, the true king, king of kings, lord of lords. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you that despite us being made in your image and failing in that relationship purpose, failing in that mandate to rule and love your creation, you have paved the way for us to worship the true king and to be restored into relationship with you as the king rules the earth and as we honour him in the way that we live on this earth. Father God, I pray that you will help us to take the mandate over your creation seriously, that it will matter to your church, Lord. But Father, as we do that, help that to be a guiding principle for us to proclaim the good news that there is a king, a true king, and he has died on the cross for us and was raised again to life on the third day so that we can worship him and be restored into relationship as you have created us to be. So Father God, bless us as we go from here and help us to live in the image that you created us to be to bring you the greatest glory on this earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.